Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello, and welcome to the second installment of Pride Mix here at Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. June is LGBTQIA plus Pride Month, and during the month of June, our episodes are called Pride Mixes. Pride Mix is a chance for us to dive deep into queer history and how it intersects with the national parks and the National Park Service's role as America's storyteller. During the Obama administration, Stonewall Inn in New York's West Village was officially named a national monument for its significance to queer history. We invite you to listen to our Pride Mixes from previous seasons that unpack this historic moment. When researching queer history, Stonewall is often looked at first, but queer history did not start at Stonewall, nor did it end at Stonewall. There are so many events and people beyond Stonewall that are responsible for the rights queer people currently have in the United States, and queer history is still being made every day because there is still a long way to go. As of April 15th, 2021, a record 117 anti-trans bills have been introduced into legislature just in the 2021 calendar year. Three and a half months, 117 anti-trans bills. So we repeat, we still have a very long way to go. The injustices the queer community currently face are not new. Queer history has been the story of resilience in the face of injustice. One example of this is the policing of queer people who gathered together. If queer people were seen gathering together in public, they could be arrested. This included bars, which were often raided. This is still practiced in some countries today, and was for a long time practiced here in the United States. So even in cities where there were higher numbers of queer people, it was not safe to even establish queer spaces. This led to many people having gatherings in their homes, and also led to the creation of the private social club. Many of these private social clubs later evolved into queer activist organizations. These social clubs were also used for other practical purposes beyond creating a safe space. It was also to meet other queer people. In a world where one might have to play one role in public, and you might have to depend on stolen glances or other hidden in plain sight social cues, it was difficult to meet other queer people. So this was a solution for this problem. I'm curious. 
what are some parts of queer history that fascinate you? If you could go back into a time machine, go back to a time when these sort of things were happening, what are some of the moments or events or maybe like practices that you would want to experience? Mm. Well, this could get real interesting. (laughs) I do feel like the 70s must have just been like a wild time to be like alive in general and to probably be queer because I feel like at that point there was the sexual revolution had happened in the late 60s. There was more of a recognition of queer people. Not that people were accepted, but they were better recognized and there was that push for acceptance that was happening then. And so I think that that would have been probably a very fascinating time to be alive because I feel like it was the confluence of a lot of things coming together and allowing people to probably live a little bit more openly than they ever were allowed to, you know, live their lives ever before. I would imagine that it was a simpler time in a lot of ways when you think about trying to meet people because the bars were really all you had at that point. You know what I mean? Like yeah. those sort of things that... If you um, were, you know, willing to take the risk Right, if you were willing to take the risk. The but again, at that point, there was a little bit more progress, especially after Stonewall and everything. There was more progress. There was there, more, There yeah. were still things that were happening, obviously. Yeah, but I, I there, you know, there was less of a app-based environment to have to slog your way through that, like, I'm sure would was its own sort of animal at the time in the 70s, you know, pre any of that but it's so interesting what about you? because the um we're talking about like queer spaces mm-hmm. and queer people gathering together and how private social clubs were formed or one of the reasons why was so that queer people could meet other queer people right. like i was thinking about you know what it's like to meet other queer people now mm-hmm. and while certainly at least in my own experience mm-hmm. We are fortunate enough. We don't have to deal with things like laws that say it's illegal to be gay in public and things like that. Or, you know, for being arrested, for being in a gay bar. Right. Is it easy to meet queer people now? No. No. (laughs) No. I mean, sure. It's easier. It's easier, I would say. Yes, it's easy. Does it happen often? No. Is it accessible? Is it fun? Not a lot of the time. Not a lot of the time. Yeah. But I mean, I do have to say, like, the majority of queer people that I have met, it has been at like, you know, small social gatherings. Right. You know what I mean? It's a mixed bag. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you and I didn't meet that way. And I think... We met at the Salem Witch Trials. Exactly. Right. Thousands of years ago. <laughs> yeah, because it was thousands of years ago. <laughs> Hundreds of years. Learn well, your the US first, history. <laughs> well, the first time we were there. Right. Right. Was thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. But the, um, but yeah, I do have to say it's still, it's, you know, I don't think history tells us even, you know, 50 years ago that it wasn't the easiest thing to meet no, other queer no, people. And no. I don't know that that's like, now with queerness, being a lot more open yeah. and like the spectrum of queerness is a lot bigger than yes, it was much then. Then I do feel like it's a little easier through social media to meet people. Sure. But I don't know that it's it's still the easiest thing to literally like physically meet another queer person mm. in your community. Yeah. On today's Pride Mix, we continue our exploration of queer icons from the San Francisco community with Rosalie Bamberger, one of the original members of the first lesbian civil rights and political rights organizations in the United States. Admittedly, there is not much written down about Rosalie Bamberger, which is all the more reason to share her story. Rosalie Bamberger lived in San Francisco with her partner, Rosemary Sleepin. 
Bamberger was of Filipina descent and worked many different jobs, including brush maker, a factory worker, and a machine operator. In an effort to be able to meet other lesbian-identified women and to create a safe space for them, Rosalie suggested to Rosemary that they create a secret, some call it a group, some say society, some say organization, for lesbian women. They brought this to another lesbian couple that they were close with, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. Rosalie offered this idea to Del and Phyllis, who immediately got on board. From an interview with Phyllis Lyon, she said, quote, Rosalie said, would you like to be a part of a group of six of us that are putting together a secret society for lesbians? Lyon raises her voice as she tells the story. We said, yes, because we immediately, because we would immediately know five more lesbians than we did, which was amazing. End quote. On September 21st, 1955, Rosalie hosted the first meeting of this new group in her San Francisco living room. There were four couples that attended. The initial purpose of the group was to remain a secret, but also to recruit new members. By the second meeting, they chose a name. They called themselves Daughters of Belitis. They also created pins that people could wear so they could be identified in public. During these first meetings, Rosalie served on the legal committee and Rosemary served as the treasurer. So where does Belitis come from? Okay, so Belitis is a reference to the songs of Belitis. Okay, are you ready for a deep dive into lesbian poetry? It's every waking moment of my life. (laughs) Okay, so The Songs of Belitis is a book of French, erotic, mostly lesbian-themed poetry by poet Pierre Louis, and it was published in Paris in 1894. The poems in this collection are written by a fictional author named Belitis, who lived on the Isle of Lesbos at the time of actual Greek female poet Sappho. Hmm. Very much a deep cut reference. Mm-hmm. But they did this so that if anyone heard the name, they could just say that it was the name of a poetry club. Also, they used daughters in the name as a reference to other groups like the Daughters of the American Revolution. Doors. Right. So certainly it was a bit subversive, mm-hmm. but also deeply referential. Yeah. Dar and Dab. No, it wouldn't be Dab. <laughs> Dob. Dob. Right. Once the Daughters of Belitis was established, it was time to begin expanding the group. They were not able to publish an advertisement in any newspaper, so they created a newsletter that they printed and distributed to as many queer women as they could. This newsletter soon became known as The Ladder. They published their mission inside of the front cover of every edition of The Ladder. It read, Quote, A women's organization for the purpose of promoting the integration of the homosexual into society by one... Education of the variant with particular emphasis on the psychological, physiological, and sociological aspects to enable her to understand herself and make her adjustment to society in all its social, civic, and economic implications. This is to be accomplished by establishing and maintaining as complete a library as possible of both fiction and nonfiction literature on the sex deviant theme, by sponsoring public discussions on pertinent subjects to be conducted by leading members of the legal, psychiatric, religious, and other professions, by advocating a mode of behavior and dress acceptable to society. Two, education of the public at large through acceptance. First of the individual, leading to an eventual breakdown of erroneous taboos and prejudices through public discussion meetings aforementioned through dissemination of educational literature on the homosexual theme. Three, participation in research projects by duly authorized 
and responsible psychologists, sociologists, and other such experts directed towards further knowledge of the homosexual. And four, investigation of the penal code as it pertains to the homosexual, proposal of changes to provide equitable handling of cases involving this minority group, and promotion of these changes through due process of law in the state legislatures, end quote. By 1959, the Daughters of Politis had chapters in many cities, including Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York. And the latter became the first lesbian publication that was nationally distributed in the United States. We also want to mention the publication Vice Versa, which was published in 1947 by Lisa Ben, which is considered the first LGBTQ magazine ever published, but it did not get national distribution. In the latter, the members would publish pseudonyms to protect their identities. The first issues of the latter were around 20 pages. They contained short stories, poetry, news, book reviews, and a running resource list of lesbian literature. The first edition had 175 copies, and they sent it to women in San Francisco that they knew might take an interest. And apparently it was all typed on a typewriter. Oh, wow. And hand-stapled. As the latter grew and more and more chapters formed, the group faced a crossroads in its own identity. Does it stay a secret society or does it become a more public group and join the growing gay liberation movement? This was a difficult decision as this would change the nature of the group and how it operated. This was also a problem for Rosalie Bamberger and her partner Rosemary. A more public group would almost certainly expose the names of the members, and Rosalie, who worked many different jobs and worked often to establish job security, couldn't risk that kind of exposure. Being exposed like this could publicly label a person as a, quote, sex deviant, end quote, and there would go any chance of job security ever again. And let's remember that it wasn't until June of last year, 2020, where we got the Supreme Court decision that officially protected Americans from being fired for being gay. Not that that suddenly fixes everything, because as we know, unfortunately, bigotry finds the way. Rosalie Bamberger and her partner left the Daughters of Belitis in 1956 as things started to grow. And while Bamberger did create the initial idea and do all of the initial forming of the group and is often cited as a founding member, Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, activists and queer icons in their own right, are still cited as the founders. The Daughters of Belitis continued to grow as the political organization, and it aligned itself with feminist activism. Soon founding members Martin and Lyon began working closely with the National Organization for Women, which took their attention away from the Daughters of Belitis. And later, the national mailing list for the latter was stolen by a member of the Daughters of Belitis in San Francisco. Her name was Rita Laporte. She started to publish editions of the latter that focused away from women and sexuality and more toward feminism. In the 1970 issue, it contained this, quote, with this issue, the latter, now in its 14th year, is no longer a minority publication. It stands squarely with all women, that majority of human beings that has known oppression longer than anyone. End quote. Because of all of these controversies with the latter and with leadership, the latter published its last issue in 1972, and then the last chapter of the Daughters of Belitis closed in 1978. The sources for today's Pride Mix is the Library of Congress's LGBTQ Plus Resource Guide on the Daughters of Belitis, the section from the NPS's LGBTQ Heritage Theme Study entitled 
Breathing Fire, Remembering Asian Pacific American Activism in Queer History by Amy Siyoshi and ShapeSF.org's profile on the Daughters of Belitis. This has been Pride Mix by Gays at the National Parks, the podcast, and we're here to remind you to pride early and pride often, and that your pride means nothing unless it's intersectional. Gays at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images of this episode, follow our Instagram at Gays at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. That's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram and on our website is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge, while recording this episode, that we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey. Mm-hmm.